Well, uh, good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, thank you for the introduction, Jürgen. The, uh, you're quite right, of course. I mean, this is uh, balmy, summer-like weather in terms of uh, Scottish, uh, Scottish conditions. But today is a, a, an excellent day to be visiting the FPA once again. Uh, today, the, the Westminster Parliament is concluding its consideration of uh, a piece of secondary legislation uh, under the Scotland Act. Now, in the normal course of things, that might not sound too exciting uh, or something worth making a speech about. However, the Section 30 order, as it's known, uh, ensures that the referendum on Scottish independence to take place in the autumn of next year uh, will be designed, built uh, and overseen uh, in Scotland. It means that the, uh, uh, the power to hold the referendum is now unchallengeable, or effectively unchallengeable, and the referendum will take place in the autumn of next year. Today actually is a, a very appropriate day for the Westminster Parliament to finish its deliberations. Uh, it was on the 16th of January in 1707 that the old Scottish Parliament voted to ratify uh, the Union just over 300 years ago. So in just under two years' time, uh, Scotland will be faced with uh, its most important decision uh, since uh, 1707. And this time, of course, the difference is that the decision won't be made by the Parliament alone. It will be made uh, by the people of Scotland as a whole. Uh, now, the Section 30 order, as, as Jürgen alluded to, brings uh, into being uh, what I agreed with uh, and signed with David Cameron last October. Uh, that agreement, which is a hugely important agreement called the Edinburgh Agreement, uh, is being honoured by both the United Kingdom and Scottish governments uh, as we move towards the referendum. Uh, and what that uh, agreement demonstrates is, although we fundamentally disagree about the direction that Scotland should travel in, uh, that uh, the process of having the referendum takes place with the consent and the cooperation of, of both the UK and the Scottish Government. And that is a, a vital, hugely significant factor in the constitutional debate in Scotland. Uh, it means, of course, that it puts the Scottish referendum in a different place from uh, other examples. It means that uh, uh, debates and discussions about sovereignty taking place elsewhere in the world are not taking place in the mature context uh, where the mandate of the Scottish National Party won in the uh, elections of 2011 is being respected by all sides in the debate. And furthermore, if you examine the Edinburgh Agreement carefully, uh, you'll see that Clause 30 of, of that agreement commits both governments both to accepting the result of the referendum uh, and then working in the interests of the Scottish people and the people in the rest of the UK uh, in their best interests. Uh, that is a, a vital part of the progress that's been made since the Scottish elections of 2011 in bringing the wishes of the Scottish people into effect, because it was that victory that demonstrated bare clear people's wish for a referendum. That was recognised immediately by all sides. The Edinburgh Agreement sets out the process by which that is taken forward. Uh, in the same way, I would submit that a vote for independence in the referendum will also be recognised immediately by all sides. Uh, and that commitment in the agreement of the Scottish and UK governments to work together after the referendum and to respect the outcome is absolutely crucial in that regard. Uh, so regardless of the degree of scaremongering that takes place between now and the, and the referendum in the autumn of next year, 
uh, once the people's decision is known, that is exactly what will happen. It will be respected on all sides of the debate. If we look at international precedents, the establishment of the Czech and Slovak Republics, reunification of Germany, they, what they demonstrate is once the popular will, once the democratic assent has been confirmed, uh, that constitutional progress and discussions uh, can take place in good time. We expect, therefore, by May 2016, the date of the next elections to the Scottish Parliament, legislation will be in place which transfers sovereignty from Westminster to Holyrood that will have agreed the necessary transitional arrangements for the United Kingdom government and that Scottish independence will have been accepted by the international community. It's important to understand that the referendum takes place in the autumn of uh, next year. But independence for Scotland doesn't take place the day after the referendum. Independence for Scotland, we believe in our timetable, is to take place before the May 2016 elections, which we believe will be the first elections to the independent Scottish Parliament. And therefore, independent Scotland would not make changes to policy in reserved areas until after those elections in 2016. Until that transfer of sovereignty takes place, we wouldn't actually have the power to do so. Essentially, nothing will change in terms of reserved areas until and unless a newly elected Scottish Parliament begins its work in 2016 and chooses to change them. However, what we will do is to establish the constitutional platform for independence following a yes vote, preserving continuity in key areas uh, and providing the first independent Scottish Parliament with the tools to make Scotland uh, a better place. Now, the button of the speech I want to make today concentrates on this. The, the, the processes by which we agree the route towards independence are hugely important. They are of enormous importance. And they are absolutely necessary. It has been necessary for the Scottish and UK governments to negotiate the Edinburgh Agreement in order to get assent onto these processes to transfer that unchallengeable legal authority uh, to Edinburgh in order to conduct the referendum to the highest international standards. But the debate about Scottish independence is not one which is going to focus on process. It's one which is going to focus on the whys of independence. Why do we believe that our country should become uh, an independent state? It's the reasons, the social and the economic gains that would be made through independence that are going to be the focus of the debate. And that's why uh, I want to talk today uh, about why the 2014 referendum matters, why we seek independence, the sort of Scotland that we seek. Following a, a yes vote in 2014, the first independent parliament, as I said, will be elected in May 2016. One of the, the first and most important tasks of that independent parliament will be to establish the process for, for writing the constitution, a written constitution through a constitutional convention for the newly independent Scotland. For, for many centuries, Scotland has had a distinct constitutional tradition, first expressed in the Declaration of Woodrow as far back as 1320, reaffirmed in recent years by the 1989 Claim of Right for Scotland, mostly recently restated by the Scottish Parliament itself uh, just a year ago. Uh, and that tradition states that the people in Scotland are sovereign, that they have the power to determine the form of government best suited to their needs. Uh, and that assertion of popular sovereignty stands in contrast uh, to the United Kingdom principle that Parliament 
has unlimited sovereignty. Now that UK tradition is one of the reasons uh, why the UK is unusual, highly unusual, in having no form of written constitution. Uh, in there's 27 states in the European Union at the present moment, 26 of them have written constitutions or near written constitutions. The only one that doesn't is the United Kingdom. It's highly unusual, it's unique within the European Union, it's also a democratic deficiency. We believe it's a deficiency and a democratic deficit that we have no intention of repeating in an independent Scotland. So one of the first duties of a, the Parliament in an independent Scotland will be to establish the Convention to draw up a written constitution. And in doing so, we return to older constitutional tradition of people's sovereignty by making sure people are directly involved in the process. Uh, as you'll know, we've had and seen in Europe some recent and inspiring examples of constitutional renewal involving citizens as well as politicians. In particular, Iceland over the last few months is an example of how modern technology has been used to harness the enthusiasm of uh, citizens as well as politicians in the renewal of the Icelandic constitution. Uh, after wide consultation, uh, its constitution, its new constitution, was uh, adopted by the people last October. If we look further back in, in history, the US Constitutional Convention of 1787 uh, brought together representatives from across the country. They set out the values of the, the New Republic with such uh, clarity and principle that that document uh, is still revered uh, more than 200 years later. So similarly, Scotland's Constitutional Convention, we believe, will provide an opportunity uh, to galvanise the nation into an expression of views. All political parties will be involved, together with the wider public and civic Scotland. And the reason for this is that Scotland's constitution should enshrine popular sovereignty and affirm the values and rights of the people of the community of the realm of Scotland. And since no single party or individual has a monopoly on good ideas, all parties, all individuals, will be invited to contribute. Now, I'm going to lay out some of the proposals that the SNP, as Scotland's current leading party, has. But I do want to put it into this context, that these are proposals, but they're not meant to be prescriptive, because, as I've said, all parties and citizens will be invited to contribute their views on Scotland's first written constitution. The Scottish Government is an important voice in that process, but it's only one voice in the process, and the examples I use are, are for illustration. Uh, not for determination. Firstly, it's important to remember that the independent Scottish Parliament, as the devolved Scottish Parliament has already, will have embedded within it uh, the European uh, Convention on Human Rights uh, and the kind of safeguards, freedom of the press, assembly, freedom of speech, etc., which will continue to be built into the Parliament of an independent Scotland. However, what I have in mind and what I wanted to put forward today are rights which uh, embrace fundamental human concerns, key economic, social, environmental needs of every citizen, as well as the touchstone rights that are embraced in terms of the European Convention. And these are the three examples I want to give today to highlight some of the issues that the Constitutional Convention would consider and some of the whys of the exciting process of Scotland becoming an independent country. Firstly, at the moment, the UK government's austerity measures and welfare cuts <coughs> are raising serious questions about 
people's rights to vital social services and how they can be protected. In Scotland, we have a, a policy of the right to free education, which in keeping with our history is the, as the nation which pioneered the concept of universal education in the later and early, morning, early modern period. We also have homelessness legislation, which is provide, providing, proving effective in granting rights to people who are made involuntary homeless. The latest homeless statistics in Scotland, homelessness statistics, were published two days ago and showed a further decline in homelessness in Scotland, even at a time uh, when those without houses and homes in England uh, are rising considerably. I would submit there is an argument for embedding provisions like rights of access to education within a written constitution. And I was going beyond the touchstone rights of the European Convention into the area of social and economic concern. And it's interesting to note in this regard that the new Icelandic constitution it has uh, provisions on the right to educational access uh, within that constitution. A second issue which uh, the Scottish constitution could examine <coughs> could include the, the future of uh, nuclear weapons in Scotland. Scotland is currently the home of uh, Western Europe's largest concentration of weapons of mass destruction. They are based in the River Clyde within 30 miles of Scotland's largest city. A constitutional ban on the possession of nuclear weapons would assure an end to that obscenity. Thirdly, there's the question for consideration on a written constitution of the use of armed force and what constitutional safeguards could be established for the use of Scottish troops in international engagements. Now, this is of great and recent relevance. In 2003, I was a, a member of a, the Westminster Parliament, which was effectively misled into sanctioning participation in an illegal invasion of Iraq. We should therefore explore, as we build that new Scottish constitution, the parliamentary and constitutional safeguards which could be established governing the use of Scottish forces in international conflict. Now, I give these uh, three examples uh, because the Scottish Government is just one part of the process. Other issues which people, and I certainly, would like to consider would include the use of Scotland's natural resources, the requirement to see that economic growth provisions are sustainable and Scotland's responsibilities and obligations as a member of the international community. But the point I want to make is this. <clears throat> as we move on to debating the, the whys of independence, the, the reasons for seeking an independent Scotland, defining the, the country that we seek, the act of drawing up a new constitution, is one which can energise and inspire people from all parties and across Civic Scotland, part of a new settlement between the government and the people, a fitting underpinning for a newly independent Scotland. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's worth contrasting the, the vigour of the constitutional debate in Scotland with the current position down the road at, uh, at Westminster. Uh, after uh, a in the UK Parliament, uh, the last two years have seen a, a further failure, yet another failure, to reform the House of Lords after a century of false starts. Uh, it seems clear that changes to the voting system in the House of Commons are off the agenda for the foreseeable future. Uh, there are deep disagreements, even within the coalition government, about the value of a separate UK Bill of Rights, uh, which instead of being seen as a, a means of uh, energising uh, uh, the citizens' rights of protection is a kind of proxy for a, a wider European debate. 
uh, as opposed to being seen as an instrument for constitutional renewal. After independence, Scotland will have the opportunity to move away from that sort of outdated and profoundly undemocratic Westminster system, uh, one incidentally which regularly delivers governments with no popular mandate in Scotland. We have instead the opportunity in an independent Scotland to move to a more transparent, democratic, effective system of government, one designed by the people of Scotland for the people of Scotland. In doing so, we make Scotland's constitution an early indication of how the people of Scotland could use the power of independence to take our place as a good global citizen, to protect and affirm the values we hold dear, and above all, to pave the way to create a fairer and most prosperous nation. That, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the key arguments in the why of creating an independent Scotland. Thank you very much.